From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the biggest strike in the country this year and the biggest strike in the history of higher education is underway right now at the University of California, where 48,000 teaching assistants, research assistants, postdocs, and tutors are in the fourth week of picketing all 10 campuses. Nelson Lichtenstein has our analysis. But first, the Georgia Senate runoff. Joan Walsh will comment in a minute. In the Georgia Senate runoff, incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock beat Herschel Walker by 100,000 votes, 1.8 million to 1.7 million. Her comment and analysis, we turn, of course, to Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. Well, you ask in the nation, can we finally talk about what a shit show these last few months have been? Yes, let's do that. First of all, why did we have to have this election twice? Why does Georgia have a runoff of the top two candidates? Because racism, John, Jim Crow, it was imposed in 1964 when Black people first started getting voting power. And so they created this bizarre rule that if you couldn't get above 50%, white or black, Democrat or Republican, it is pretty fair, as they say, you were going to go to a runoff. But the thing was that runoffs are really tough for insurgent candidates. They take a lot of time. They confuse voters like, why am I going to a runoff? What is a runoff? Uh, And so they figured that was a good way to really thwart black black voting power. And it was until 2021 when people figured out how to use it. And then we had this whole business about early voting on Saturday. What was that story? Well, you know, it depends who you talk to. Um, basically, the story was that there was a holiday that was created that was called Robert E. Lee Day. And our, our, you know, our listeners know who that is. And you could not have, allegedly, you could not have a vote within a couple of days of that, of any holiday. Then people challenged it, not just because it was Robert E. Lee Day, but it it never said anything about runoffs, so it should have been fine to just have a runoff election within a couple of days of Robert E. Lee Day. So Reverend Warnock's people and all, you know, all the people w- went to a judge and, you know, for the first time in a long time, the judge found that they were right. And so people did get to go and vote on Robert E. Lee Day. I just think we should call it Robert E. Lee Day. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. There's you know? one one missing part of this. Why is it that early voting benefits Democrats in Georgia? And that's why the Republicans would like to limit it. I think anything that gives working people, people of lower income, more time to get to the polls, they think benefits Democrats. But I think they're going to have to rethink that. And I think, you know, they've, they've campaigned against early voting and they've campaigned against and, they, and they've shut down absentee voting. But they're 
their voters want that too. I mean, first of all, let's just be honest, their voters are our demographic. They are older people and they would like to have more choices. So I think it's going to get more interesting over time. I'm not sure, but I do think that that is going to go away. Well, there certainly was a high turnout for early voting in person. Uh, we saw all those pictures of long lines at the very beginning of, of uh, early voting. The mainstream media said this shows the enthusiasm of the voters. Do you, uh, is that the way you see it? No. You know what? My heart saw it that way. I loved it. You know, it's like, yes, they're out there. They're going to go vote. But no, it was because they cut back so far on absentee voting and and also absentee ballot drop offs, which were really incredible in 2020 and 2021. So, you know, it was definitely just people really struggling for the right to vote. And shutting uh, voting places in black neighborhoods and moving voting places in black and neighborhoods. And moving voting places. And I'd like to make one other note here. It used to be called absentee voting. Now let's call it voting by mail. Voting by mail in where I live in the state Thank of California you. is an ordinary thing. Every voter gets a ballot. If you want to vote by mail, go ahead. You don't need to apply for an absence with a reason, right. which is the difference between red states and blue states, basically. Right. And I, I just wonder if that's going to change. I mean, I hope it does. I have no evidence that it will. But it's just there are so many states that do it that, that you know, are, are at least purple states. But what they did with shutting down drop boxes was really evil. And that's why I am so thrilled that Senator Warnock won, but that he won by such a slim margin, that's on us. That's on yeah, our conscience. Yeah. Well, the, um, the Republicans' biggest chance, and really the heart of their strategy, especially with Herschel Walker, was vote suppression, was the main weapon they had for winning. But in the end, it seems like the biggest factor in the race may have been that Herschel Walker himself was probably the worst candidate in the recent history of American politics. But what does it say that white Republicans in Georgia picked Herschel Walker, a black man, to be their Senate candidate? Does that represent racial progress in America? Um, no. Being a white lady, I'm just going to defer to a black lady. Adrian Shropshire of Black Pack was really kind of open about it, it, which, you know, people would say this off the record, but they wouldn't say it on the record. But she did. The Republican Party is attempting to impose their vision of what a black leader should be. It fit white conservatives stereotypes of black men and which is kind of creepy. If we ask how Warnock won for the fourth time, let us admit, in two years, basically, this was a turnout battle from the beginning. Turnout everywhere was very high, especially for a runoff. I, I read it ended up in the runoff about 90% of what the vote had been on election day in November, narrowly higher in blue counties. So let's talk about the Democratic turnout operation. This is the fruit of a decade of work by Stacey Abrams and the New Georgia Project to significantly expand the Georgia electorate. How did this work 
for Warnock in the runoff? Um, I think it worked very well for him. I talked to a lot of people. They, you know, there was like last minute money flooding the zone um, and really great organizations were getting the money that they had been begging for, to be honest, for a couple of years um, to do voter education, turnout, mobilization um, for the runoff. But, you know, it, it's also, it's it's very sad because obviously Stacey Abrams lost. Uh, and there's also, you know, a little bit of tension about, you know, whether the really excellent groups got the funds they needed. And I will always be on the side of those groups. You know, John, I just think that they are the ones who are living in the community and they are, you know, talking to people at the grocery store and walking their dogs. And that is what creates lasting political value. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on this. I'm in favor of this is what Stacey Abrams pioneered for the last 10 years in Georgia, face-to-face, door-to-door, front porch, in-person organizing for voter engagement over the long term. And that means spending money on paid staff for field operations rather than on the TV ads that most candidates think are crucial. Warnock, I read, spent $52 million on TV ads course there's a lot of evidence that political ads on tv don't really change people's minds but i wonder when you have an opponent as bad as herschel walker who's done such terrible things and said such ridiculous and embarrassing things maybe in this case it helped warnock to spend 52 million on negative ads about uh, herschel walker instead of spending spending it on paid staff for field operations I, i wonder what you think about whether this is a special case. I had not thought about that. His ads were great, but I'm sorry. If we want Georgia to be blue, we need to invest in those organizations that are on the ground and working with people day to day. And I don't think that, God bless him, I'm so happy he won, but I don't think Senator Warnock did that. And I think that is gonna be something that people argue about for the next few months. As I said, this all started with Stacey Abrams. Did she campaign in the runoff for Warnock? I don't believe she was asked to campaign. Mm. I don't know. I I put the question out there. I did not get an answer, but she did not campaign. So that's all I can say. But I can't imagine if she was asked that she would not have done something. And, you know, at the end, he went to some event with Killer Mike. And, you know, I've had my issues with Killer Mike going back seven years, which sounds like... Let's just say Killer Mike, um, black rapper who campaigned with uh, Bernie Sanders from the very beginning. Yeah, and often had some misogynistic things to say campaigning with Bernie Sanders. Killer Mike was back this year in Georgia talking up Brian Kemp, the voter suppression governor who was running against Stacey Abrams and saying that Brian Kemp was more in touch with the black community than Stacey Abrams. Oh, my gosh. 
Reverend Warnock went out with him on, you know, the last night of the campaign. And I, I'm getting completely dogged on social media for objecting to this, but I will never apologize. That was wrong. And I love Reverend Warnock. Let me ask you a question about Brian Kemp. Of course, he's kind of a hero for standing up to Trump in 2020 and not switching the votes in Georgia. But of course, his politics are horrible right-wing, you know, fundamentalist uh, politics. I, I read he refused to to campaign with Herschel Walker in the November campaign, but he did campaign for him in the in the runoff. And yeah. now Herschel Walker has lost. So where does that leave a Brian Kemp as a figure in 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 national uh, Republican politics? Do you think he's probably going to run for president? I mean, you know, all these guys are going to run for president, unless even if Trump does. I do have to say, you know, I remember on November 9th, we had our lovely conversation conversation. And it was like, who, who is the biggest loser? Definitely. Donald Trump. Yeah. Again, it's Donald Trump. I mean, this is ridiculous that, you know, this last race, he could not marshal the money, the people, the ideology to get Herschel Walker across the finish line. Also, he's ha- he's got had a lot of um sudden legal issues shockingly in the last few days i mean i i think he's the biggest loser and i think that means it is a free-for-all and i think brian kemp runs i do you as you have suggested uh herschel walker is now the fourth trump-backed senate candidate to lose in a potentially winnable state this year. Let's not forget Blake Masters in Arizona, Adam Laxalt in Nevada, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. How can we forget Dr. Oz? (laughs) Let's never forget Dr. Oz. So in a way, Democrats were very lucky this time around that that Trump picked their, the, the candidates. They may not be so lucky in four years when the map is not as favorable. Uh, for for Democrats, but at least Georgia now has two Democratic senators who've been elected multiple times, and that really makes Georgia a key battleground state in in twenty twenty four. One of five or six states that's going to select the next president, don't you think? It really does because I had my issues with my beloved <laughs> Reverend, but both he and Senator John Ossoff. They have awesome field staff. They have awesome ground games. I mean, I don't think they did enough. I'm not going to say they didn't try hard enough. I don't think enough happened in November. But I think they have organizations that will potentially, not definitely, keep Georgia blue. On the other hand, I am going to be covering what happened to the major funders who funded the day-to-day neighbor-to-neighbor Latinx, Asian, Black, poor people, workers, the, the really amazing things that were on the ground in 2020 and 2021 and kind of got a little goosing 
for this runoff because that is what we need. And that's what we need across the country. We cannot rely on Chuck Schumer, God bless him, and, you know, major donors giving to we on the left really need to be going out and connecting with our neighbors, talking to them about what matters. And I think that that's what the Georgia, the new Georgia project that Stacey Abrams founded and other groups did that others are not doing. And if that doesn't continue, we have a problem. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. This was great. Thank you, John. Please have me back. The biggest strike in the country this year and the biggest strike in the history of higher education is underway right now at the University of California, where 48,000 teaching assistants, research assistants, tutors, postdocs, and researchers are in the fourth week of picketing all 10 campuses, demanding big pay increases to help cover the higher cost of living, especially the cost of housing in California. For comment, we turn to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches history at UC Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author of 16 books, including the definitive history of the United Auto Workers, titled Walter Ruther, The Most Dangerous Man in Detroit. He also writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, Descent, and The Guardian. We reached him today in Santa Barbara. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Well, the latest news is that last week the university offered one group of strikers, the postdoc researchers, a $12,000 raise in the coming year. That's 20%. And this covers 12% of the 48,000 striking workers. The members of that UAW branch are voting right now this week. Most workers in America would love a 20% wage boost in the coming year. So this looks like a tremendous victory for the union. What do you think? It's a modest increase, in part because there's been a stagnation in uh, wages uh, for postdocs and also academic researchers uh, over many years. Uh, so they're sort of making up for that. And of course, also the, the predicate for this strike has been this enormous increase in um, housing inflation in California and coastal California over the last few years, not to mention the inflationary surge of the last uh, 18 months, really. One, one interesting aspect of this uh, UC offered to the postdocs who are mainly, you know, working labs and things of that sort, and, and also some of the academic researchers, is that it's gotten the professoriate, the tenured professors, quite upset, not because they don't they don't want their, their postdocs to have a wage increase, but because they're going to have to pay for it. In other words, the money for this comes from the grants that the principal investigators win from the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of health, etc. So UC is not actually paying for this wage increase. So the there was a long letter sent by all the science faculty saying, wait, what are you doing here? You know, you're basically having putting it on us. Yes, we want them to get more money, but you know, you have to contribute some or at the very least uh, lobby Congress or something to uh, to get the uh, stipends increased from the from the federal uh, science agencies. 
Now, some of our friends, including the Nation Strikes correspondent Jane McAlevey, who has a piece at the magazine right now but was not able to join us today, says that this is a a disaster for the union as a and the strike as a whole because it splits the striking workers into two groups, the ones who are getting the really big offer and then everybody else. What do you think about that? Well, that is unquestionably uh, the University of California's strategy or the negotiators for the University of California. Yes, they are clearly trying to do that. They've, they've given in two ways they, they've, they've made this. On the one hand, yes, they've given a, clearly a better offer to the postdocs and these uh, and these academic researchers, again, paid for by the feds. And really, they, they've pretty much stonewalled uh, and given a very inadequate offer to the to what was the heart of the strike. That is the teaching assistants, the grad students, the tutors, et cetera, really the majority of those on strike and really the the and heart of the strike, and 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 they're far more inadequate. And in addition to that, by the way, it's just very obvious they they call for a a five year a, I think it's a five year contract for the postdocs and the people working labs, and a and a three year contract for the t- teaching assistants. Well, that's just so that they won't be they won't coordinate. You know, they'll be they'll be divided. So it's pretty it's that's pretty obvious. The postdocs are voting this week. What do you think they should do? Well, I think they should actually reject the contract. The same is true of the academic researchers, partly because it's only a modest uh, improvement for them. And if they, and it would also materially help the teaching assistants, uh, the grad student teaching assistants, who really are up against it. And uh, and I think a kind of united front would be something that the that UC and its negotiators would would take would recognize. You know, this is this is something they have to deal with. So I, I would recommend that they reject it. Now, I assume that the TAs who are, as you say, crucial to this strike, because they're the ones who grade the final exams, and it is now week 10 and going to be week 11 of the fall quarter, and that means it's final exam time. The university has made them what the university calls a final offer. You, You said this was not a very good offer. Currently, I saw that teaching assistants at the University of California have a baseline salary of $23,200. That's really poverty wages, isn't it? Right. It is, of course. And, and, and it was exacerbated by this surge in housing costs. Okay, I look pretty carefully. I don't want to get into all the weeds about it, but I look pretty carefully at the at the UC offer to the teaching assistants. And over the course of a three-year period, there will be a nominal increase in wages. UC calculates at 25%. But really, that begins in, doesn't begin now, it it began in 2021. And that doesn't, of course, take into effect inflation. And if you you calculate inflation in there, and one of the big demands of the teaching assistants was COLA, cost of living adjustments, so that they wouldn't, that wouldn't be eroded. If you take that, and I I think the the real increase uh, is about eight or nine percent over four years. Well, I think from UC's point of view, you know, they view this, this is sort of just, okay, another routine two or 3% a year. But the, the student teaching assistants, the grad students and the postdocs, they want what they call a transformative contract, one that will sort of end this, this era of, of near poverty, of austerity, of precarity, insecurity. And, and UC is clearly not about to do that. Well, the university emphasizes that its offer, which I understand is around $28,000 in, what, two years from now, 
up from twenty three thousand dollars to get to twenty eight. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. get to twenty eight, yeah, they say that twenty eight. You have to remember. They say this is for half time work because right. yeah. grad students are required to study and only allowed to work for twenty hours. So if twenty eight thousand is for half time, they say that's. 56,000 equivalent for full-time, and that's a pretty good salary these days. Yeah. Are they right about that? Well, that's all That's all so theoretical. <laughs> In fact, it's you can't actually put a grad student on more than 20 hours a week. They will call you on that. You can't do that. I've tried to do that. You can't do that. <laughs> Maybe you have- it's in the union contract. It's that's the right. workload, <laughs> the workload provision. That's right. So the rent is not half. If the rent were cut in half, that'd be fine. Or you know, whatever the or the hot dog you buy was cut in half. But the, but the the expenses are full time, and the the salary is half time. So now the university replies that they don't control the cost of housing in California. Right. They, of course they don't. But um, well, there, there are obviously things that that in long long term that could be done. Obviously, more housing for for students. They do provide housing for faculty, and and sometimes that subsidize them. Um, mortgage rates, et cetera. Um, that's a long-term uh, kind of solution. And, and there is some grad student housing. There's married yes, grad student there, housing at UCLA, at Irvine. I think it's in right, Of course there is. Uh, not enough of it. But 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 here's the thing that, that, that for lots, all sorts of reasons, there's inflation. I mean, the, the price of gasoline, the university doesn't control the, the price of, uh, of food, uh, which has gone up, et cetera. But this is just the reality of inflation. When you have inflation, uh, the real wages of people is eroded. And when you're sort of toward the toward the bottom, that creates real pain. And so th- this is what, what unions have been doing for the last century. <laughs> you know, they've, they've said we need a wage increases to keep up with inflation. I want to go back to this issue of the teaching assistants grading final exams, because sure. this is really the heart of the right. of the strike. And it's the heart of the problem the university now faces. If the strike isn't settled in the next couple of weeks, students will not get most of their final exams graded. So what happens then is they may get an incomplete for their fall quarter work, even though they finished their work. Uh, One of the issues here is how much support do the striking TAs have among students and among the faculty who the university is now pressuring to do the grading? That's right. They are. I mean, there's no doubt that this is disruptive and 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 in, and inconvenient and, and worse, uh, and creating problems for all sorts of people, faculty and undergraduates as well. That's true of, of any kind of any kind of service service sector strike. Everything from 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 the hospital to the DMV. But what's remarkable about this strike, and I think, is that there's tremendous support for this the certainly the demands of the strike, and I think the strike itself. Well, among Every undergraduate leader in the in the system has endorsed what the what the grad students and other others want. The faculty has uh, nine hundred faculty issued a, a statement, you know, calling on the the UC and the regions to meet the demands of the strike. So I think that in general there is enormous support for this. There's, there's you know, unlike some like teacher strikes we had, you know, a couple of decades ago where you'd get a group of angry parents and you know demand. Yeah, you know, none of that's happened. None of that's happened. And I and I I think uh, there's 
general support. And of course, many faculty people have been out on the, some of the picket lines. Now, the faculty are teaching their classes right now. They, they, are, they are not on strike. But when you have a, a class of any size and you had some teaching assistance, it's going to mean that the grades will not be in there that, you know, when the, when the time comes. Some chancellors, I, I understand, I, uh, I think at Irvine, you t- uh, postponed the grades coming in until January. I, I found out that here at UC Santa Barbara, there was like a week delay, which wasn't very much. But I don't know if that's going to be general or not. That Clearly, the, those cha- the chancellors are trying to, to avoid a kind of, I think they'd like to avoid a showdown. Now, the picket lines are at the university, the 10 university campuses. Yep. And as you say, the chancellors are struggling with what to do about this. But yep. Jane McAlaby reminds us, the chancellors are not the ones negotiating with the union. Right. It's the university president and the uh, which has full-time union negotiators. Right. And the real power here is the regents of the university. And Jane McAlevey argued in The Nation that it's time to put the pressure on the regents. I wonder what you think about that. Well, I, I, I agree. I think that is true. And not just the regents, but also the legislature and the governor. Yeah. Uh, and, there, and there are, as we speak, uh, there are actually sit-ins taking place. Uh, yeah. The in in Sacramento and and in, in the headquarters of the UC and I think pickets have gone up to some regents' houses and things of that sort. In Los Angeles, union member members did picket the offices of one of the regents. This is a guy named Regent Jay Shores, yeah. Beverly Hills. I, I looked him up. What kind of person gets appointed by the Democrats as a regent? Regent Jay Shores is a Hollywood Uber agent yeah. who represents TV personalities, including Chuck Todd, Dr. Phil, and Jake Tapper. Yeah. He's also a philanthropist who fights cancer with the UCLA Comprehensive Cancer Center Foundation. And his office now is being picketed every day in Beverly Hills. Uh, the striking uh, UC employees say, quote, UC Regent Jay Shures runs a talent, talent agency, will be here until he does something about the lack of talent at the University of California <laughs> negotiating table. So this is the kind of spirit that we like to see. That's that's right. I mean, the, the it's one of the features of the UC system for those your listeners outside California, the chancellors are, are really don't have all that much power in, in many ways. The larger issue is this, that we've had four decades or more of austerity, really, when it comes to the university. So, for example, in the 1960s, when Clark Kerr famously, you know, put forth his master plan for the the sort of the architecture of the entire university, the state of California, the legislature appropriated about 50% of the operating funds of the university. Today, it's somewhat more than 10%. So that's been reduced enormously. And so it's the the regents and then them putting pressure on the governor and the and the uh, legislature to reverse this, this austerity uh, trend line, which has gone on for decade after decade. And I think this strike is actually an impulse toward that, because, you know, if this is what's going to happen at a great university all the time, well, then we have to do something about it. And I think that will propel the, the legislature and the governor uh, and the powers that be to, to increase funding. And of course, California is a rich state. The GDP of California is larger than all nations except four or five. 
That's cor- that's correct. As of June of 22, uh, there was something $97 billion surplus. Now that will decline, especially if we have a recession. But nevertheless, all this wealth needs to be needs to be a progressive taxation. And, uh, and, and you know, to fund, uh, uh, you know, an institution like UC, which is really at the heart of what the, the California dream is all about. Nelson Lichtenstein is University of California labor historian and a union activist. Nelson, thanks for talking with us today. Great to talk to you. And let me add, you can read more about the UC strike at thenation.com, where Jane McAlevey has a piece titled, Time to Turn Up the Pressure on the University of California Decision Makers. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.